To support our work at the Izzy and Murtada Picture Show and the work of other independent creators like us, sign up to listen to the podcast on Nebula. Nebula is the creator-owned streaming platform that hosts great videos and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Sign up today at nebula.tv slash picture show, and you'll get access to this podcast plus other great podcasts and videos. Sign up at Nebula and help support independent media creators. That's nebula.tv slash picture show. I'm Izzy. And I am Mortada. And this is the Izzy and Mortada Picture Show. Coming to you today from two different places. Izzy and I were not in the same town this last week. I was home in New York while Izzy was on an adventure in Los Angeles. Izzy, you actually went to Hollywood. I did. It was my first time on the Walk of Fame and all of that which was truly an experience. <laughs> um, but I was there for the TCM Classic Film Festival, which is my first time not only on the Walk of Fame, but also at that festival. So um, what a fantastic experience. If you're uh, subscribed to my channel or my Patreon or anything like that, definitely watch out because this interview is part of a larger project that I'm working on about the festival and what it was like to go. Um, so be sure to stay tuned in those places as well. Yes. So this week we have two separate interviews for you. Two amazing people. Um, one talked to me and one talked to Izzy. Um, so my interview is with the wonderful director, Lisa Cortez, who directed the documentary, Little Richard, I Am Everything, which you can see now everywhere. I think it's in cinemas and it's available um, to rent or buy online. Um, and Izzy, do you remember meeting Lisa? I think we both met her at the same time late yeah. last year. Yeah, I do. She's fantastic. And you actually, uh, so is this your first interview with her or, uh, just like the second time that you met her or tell me more? Actually, I have met her several times. So this oh, is okay. very funny. I, I actually feel like I'm a little bit stalking her because <laughs> we, we met her the first time when she hosted a screening for St. Omer during mm -hmm. St. Omer's um, awards run. And that was, I think, in December of, of last year. And that was the first time I met her at sort of like the, the drinks after the screening. And we started talking and, and she told me about, you know, what she's working on. And she's like, she didn't tell me about this film, but she's like, hmm, be on the lookout for um, an announcement. And then very um, discreetly asked me if I was going to Sundance. And I said, yes. She's like, all right, I'll let you know in a few weeks. And then we exchanged emails. When Sundance announced the movies for this year, then she emailed me and she's like, well, see, uh, this movie that I directed, Little Rich and I Am Everything is going to premiere at Sundance. Um, and I was like, you know, oh, great. You know, I'll be there wishing you all the luck and all of that. So I then made sure that I'm there at the premiere of the movie mm -hmm. when I was in Park City. And it was a wonderful premiere. The movie just played like gangbusters. People were having so much fun. And this is kind of what I get into with Lisa in this interview. is just the exuberance and the joy that this film brings that it exemplifies little Richard's personality. Like the film is full of him. Obviously, it's about him. Um, archival footage of all 
old interviews that he did on TV. Uh, it gives the context of the environment he grew up in, in the South and why he became who he is. And obviously it shows that he was an out gay man before there was even, um, there was before anyone else was actually out. Um, plus it tells of, of his um, status as a pioneer because, you know, there is no Elvis without Little Richard, which um, as we talked in a previous episode, Baz Luhrmann did not really touch on. Right, right. <laughs> that much. Um, but anyway, back to Lisa. So, so then, um, you know, I work as a programmer at New Fest. And so New Fest had um, a screening for, for Little Richard, like an early screening in the run up to its opening last month. And I um, did the Q&A for that. So that's when I met her for the second time. And we had a wonderful conversation in the Q&A. Um, and we found out that we're both air signs. I'm a Virgo, she's a Capricorn. So we, <laughs> we bonded. And, and now I'm very happy that she agreed to come on the podcast to talk to me once more about Little Richard. I think it's a great interview. She started her career as a music executive um, in Def Jam and Mercury Records. Um, she's made the film All In, The Fight for Democracy. She's a filmmaker. And so she's the perfect person to tell this story. And one of the things that I would like our listeners to pay attention to is um, I asked her about what she wanted to accomplish with this film, just as a documentarian. And she said she wanted to decolonize the form. And I mm -hmm. think when just, you know, pay attention to that part, because I think it's very interesting for somebody from her background to come in and make a documentary and make a documentary about somebody who is controversial, like little Richard, you know, denounced his queerdom late in life. And that's something that um, the, film does not shy from and she talks about that too so it's a really wonderful conversation and I hope everybody enjoys it do you have your do you have first memories of of little Richard see that's the thing one of the things that I uh talked to about with Lisa about is that I didn't grow up in this country so I don't really have um any memories of little Richard because little Richard was not big in Sudan like we didn't really and probably because he was Queer. I just so remember really... him from um I remember him from Sesame Street. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Yeah. He was on it all the time. He like would sing songs with Bert and Ernie and stuff. <laughs> oh my god. And so I like that's that. how I remember him growing up. It was just, yeah, he was cool because he was on Sesame Street. <laughs> yes. He's definitely a cool character in this film. Shows him in in all his complexity. Um that's great. I've been hearing rave reviews about it. Honest, I yeah. someone someone talked to me about it actually at the festival, um, so I can't wait to watch it. Yes, and you and why don't you tell me about your interview? You interviewed TCM's Alicia Malone. Correct. Um, so one of my goals in going to the festival was kind of like thinking about TCM as a channel and kind of the main classic film entity that people are aware of. If they're fans of classic film, that's where you can watch it that's where it's like celebrated um in a mass media way more so than on other tv channels or other streaming services and so i wanted to go there and see you know what's the experience if you go are you going to have a good time what are you going to see what's it like who's going to be there what is tcm thinking about when they're thinking about the future of the channel and the future of fandom of classic films um, and so obviously I wanted to talk to someone from TCM about those topics. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always, I've been a fan of Alicia Malone's for a while because I think 
it's one of those things where you kind of can see yourself in someone a little bit. It feels like a representation <laughs> thing. <laughs> Cause I was like, Oh, that's yes. so cool. There's just this, this like young woman who um, was very interested in classic film and like found a way to make it a part of her life. And basically her job now is talking about that. And that's what I've wanted to do. Um, and so I've really admired kind of how she did that. And she talks a lot about um, how she did it in her books, especially her most recent one, which is called, it's called Girls on Film. We talked a little bit about the themes in her book um, and what it's kind of like for her to be a huge celebrity at this festival, but <laughs> kind of a, a normal person in real life. Um, and then and is she a huge celebrity at the festival? Like are people following oh, yeah. her, taking photos with her, all that? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, she has like someone who kind of escorts her around, I think, and like gets her from event to event. She's introducing all of the films. People, uh, want to take pictures with her, um, cause they see her. She's in their living rooms almost every night if they watch the channel. So, um, she feels like a, a friend to a lot of viewers of TCM, I think. And that's true of all of the hosts. Um, but we talked a lot too about how to get young people involved in classic films and kind of like convincing them to try them in a market that has so much new things to offer to young people. Like how do you convince them to watch something that's decades old in black and white and maybe doesn't have the the moral <laughs> fortitude of some of today's work. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very interesting conversation. And um, I think like I said, it kind of works into a larger conversation with something that I'm working on and I hope everyone enjoys it. Yeah, sounds really interesting. I have one last question to you about Alicia Malone before we go to Lisa and Alicia and their interviews. Does she have an Australian accent in real? She does. Yeah, she <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she does. <laughs> okay. I know that she I was very surprised to know that she's Australian because you know, when you're watching TS TCM, sometimes you don't really pay attention to the host that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I never noticed the accent, but then she she hosted a podcast about that HBO show, The Gilded Age. And that's, that's right. when I noticed her accent. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. I think um I wonder, I didn't ask her about this, but I do wonder if that ever raised a barrier for her. Because one of the things we did talk about is like the audience divide at TCM, right? Like there's a contingent that's, you know, mostly older white people who are hesitant to accept change and like their movies to be presented in a way that preserves nostalgia. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to kind of have someone co come in who like, you don't sound like Robert Osborne, you don't look like Robert Osborne. Um, yeah. like, does that kind of pre present a barrier? But we did talk about like age and gender with respect to that a little bit. Um, yeah. so yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, and listeners, before we give you these two wonderful interviews, we have a favor to ask of you. If you're listening, if you can take a moment to go to Apple podcast or wherever it is you're listening and give us a five-star rating. And if you can write a short review, that would be awesome because that way more people will find the show and listen to it um so give us one more minute of your time after you finish listening to this episode yeah we would really appreciate it <laughs> 
And without further ado, we will go to the interviews first. It's me talking with Lisa Cortez, the director of Little Richard, I Am Everything. And then it's Izzy talking to Alicia Malone, the TCM host. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm good, my dear. <laughs> it is. Uh, I'm so happy to talk to you again about this film. You know, um, I love it so much. And um um, I wanted to start by asking you uh, for my listeners on the Easy and Mortada Picture Show to tell us about what brought Little Richard to you. Why did you want to make this this film, like the genesis of, of this project? It was the <clears throat> spring of 2020. We were all in lockdown and it was... A, a, a really dark and challenging time for many people and especially for me. Um, he passed away and I started hearing his music mm-hmm. um, and it, it brought me so much joy. And that in itself was a gift. Um, and it, then it kind of brought back wonderful nostalgic memories of dancing around to his music with my cousins when I was a little kid. Um, In those instances, when someone is so prevalent in the public consciousness, I was like, I want to know more about him. Let me see if there's been a doc. And upon discovering that his story hadn't been told, it was a really exciting time to think about how to uh, embrace his legacy through Mm -hmm. documentary. Yes, and I I love that you talked about the joy that it gives you to listen to Richard because I saw the film for the first time at its premiere at Sundance way back in January. I've seen it a couple of times since. But I remember that first screening, it was that joy, that exuberance that everybody was feeling in the room. And I think what you accomplished in the film brought along sort of Richard's way of being and made it into... um, into the movie. So can you talk a little bit about that, about the, the personality of Richard, the exuberance, the joy that is very apparent in, in your film? Well, I think the, the the structure of the film is, first of all, Richard narrates his story, you know, from, from cradle to grave. You know, he is the only one who, who has, I feel, the right to tell his story. And we do that through um, archival materials that were gathered uh, from many sources. Uh, And we're hearing Richard's voice. We're hearing a younger Richard. And we're also hearing Richard shortly before um, he passed away. Um, You know, you got to give him his agency, or I felt that I had to give him his agency. and. that there was so much I felt like he wanted us to tell an an audience uh, that went beyond just telling people to shut up. (laughs) Which is his famous saying. (laughs) Truly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I wanted to ask you, just as a documentarian, I think one of the things when, when we talked about this film earlier last month, you mentioned something about you wanted to do, and I'm paraphrasing, so correct me if I don't get what you said um, entirely right, but um, that you wanted to do something different. You wanted to disrupt maybe the form itself of the documentary with this film. So can you talk a little bit about what you wanted to accomplish 
that's different from other musical documentaries? Well, um, yeah, uh, my words were that I wanted to decolonize, you know, um, this music documentary genre, you know, who tells the story, who is seen as the um, architects of this music. And those people who have been attributed a place are typically not black, they're not queer. I also felt that, you know, um, in playing with the form, I wanted to, uh, for a film, this film to be immersive. You are not just, you know, seeing Richard and hearing from people who knew and loved him, but it's also the addition of the incredible black and queer scholars. It's the um, dreamscape performances by contemporary artists like Valerie June and Corey Henry, uh, mm -hmm. Pastor Key, who are part of the legacy of Richard. So it's not just like a past tense, like he was, he did, but it's actually, I feel Richard still is, um, his contributions are alive and active. Um, and that is kind of the energy and framing of the film in many ways. Yeah, um, and it really shows in the film. And I'm glad you you brought up the dream sequences because I wanted to ask you about that. So basically, for the listeners who have not seen the film yet, what are you waiting for? You should go see it. But um, what happens in the film is that there is a reimagining of some of Richard's early song with the original racy queer lyrics intact that is presented by contemporary artists. So Lisa, can you tell tell us wh why you wanted to include that and what was the process of like, how did you choose which songs to include and which not to include? And how did you find the, the modern, um, the contemporary artists that are included in your film? When I went out to pitch this film, I always talked about dreamscapes. And for me, they're, in addition to be re reimaginings, they are also depicting seminal moments in Richard's life where portals of possibility open. So meeting, you know, young teenage Richard, meeting Sister Rosetta Tharp, who then invites him to perform on stage at the Macon Auditorium, these are moments where possibility opens for Richard, portals of energy, which is why we introduce like this visual with an energy that represents him and grows. Um, and it was also a way to just see how Valerie June is an incredible Americana artist in her own right, but she also understood the importance of who Sister Rosetta Tharp was and mm. what her contributions were. So to show that kind of, you know, the past is, is prologue to the moment that we're in, that, you know, there is this great connection um, in this, all the branches of this family tree. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I love also what you talked about, um, about showing Richard in his whole queerdom. Like as a queer person, I I just love that part of it. Love to see it 
um, you know, love, I didn't grow up in America. So my, um, my knowledge of little Richard is not vast, but so I never saw those TV interviews that are included in your film with he's so unapologetically queer and, you know, way back when, like even, you know, way back in the, in the 60s, I think, even before the 80s and 90s, he continued to be queer in, on these TV archival shows. So my question to you is, um, what, how, you know, personally, I love these as a queer person. What do you hope the film tells queer people today about, about Richard and about being unapologetically queer? Well, there's, there's a, so that's a complicated question. Because mm -hmm. as we know, at a certain point in Richard's life, he um, says that he's queer no longer. Mm -hmm. um, he says that God made, you know, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. So I think there's something cautionary and sad in those statements. Um, I think when Richard is at his fullness, when he is not negating all of the things that make him, we see the importance of what he brought as a queer person, what he learned from other queer musicians and how this history should be known, how it mm -hmm. should be not be erased um, because I think it's a part of our history that is liberating for everyone to recognize these great contributions of people who have not been centered in the telling of rock and roll history. Yeah, and this is kind of what your film brings. Like the film to me as a revelation is that it's a different story told about the history of rock and roll. It's a story that may, that I certainly haven't seen and I think many people haven't seen. Um, and that's what, what makes it special. So can you talk about your collaboration maybe and the research you did and your collaboration with the people who, who you know, the, the talking heads in your film who bring that, that cultural context together and what you were trying, um, what story you were trying to tell? Well, it's, you know, I was in conversation with a journalist um, at a screening last night who made an interesting point about how when you see the 10 part history of rock and roll on you know public television there's a footnote about little richard but it does not do justice to framing him um within this broader cultural context um and that is something that's important for for me in doing this dive into his story into um, what is happening in America in 1955, you, you see that he arrives at a time where the, the idea of the teenager is now full-blown as a post-World War II um, uh, concept, that um, music, though still segregated, had, plays an interesting role in Richard's career of bringing Black and white young people together. Uh, yet at the same time, on the business side, he is relegated to the race side of the charts. He doesn't mm -hmm. have the opportunity to to cross over and have the success, um, you know, on the, the mainstream success 
that other artists have when they cover his material. So it is, it's both illuminating and, and also poignant that despite it all, Little Richard continued to produce music and to proclaim himself an emancipator, a king, at a time when nobody was looking to give him a crown. He made his crown and he put it on and then he put on his lipstick. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, those are things that are that often take superhuman strength to do. Yes, absolutely. I love when you said yeah, he put on his lipstick. And that brings me to the part of the film that I think the beginning of Rich's life, I think what your film does really well is that it tells us, tells a complete story about his upbringing, his influences, even bef- his family, his um, environment that he grew up in, his influences, all of that is included in the film, even before he, he started performing. So can you talk about that part of the film and that part of, of Richard's life? Well, you know, a lot of people look at the um, contradictions in, and the roller coaster ride that he goes on between being, you know, a, a saint and uh, a rock and roll sinner, you know, the secular and the profane. But mm-hmm. Richard is kind of born into contradictions. His, his father is uh so indicative that of that he's a a minister and a bootlegger he owns a club you know you you typically would not string those three things together um richard is going to uh churches that are very different in how in how uh people express themselves the holy roller church and on the other side the the very more staid baptist uh church um and very early on, Richard tells us he's, you know, taking his mother's curtains down and dressing up in them. He's putting lipstick on. So we see that he is, you know, navigating his queerness in a from very early on in a space that, um, you know, people surrounding him do not walk the straight and narrow. Mm. You know, um, they are. Yes, they're a minister by day, but they're a club owner by night. And according to the rules that Richard grew up with, you could not do both of those things. Mm, yeah. Um, one of the things that I, um, after I watched your film, you know, I, I've, you know, I'm, I've never heard of Sister Rosetta Sharp. I am, I, so I went and you know Googled and, and tried to find more about her. So maybe I want to ask you, when you were researching and making this film, some of the people that were influenced by Richard, who do you hope people take, you know, go and and find more about from the people that you you found where uh, have influenced Richard? I, I think that uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp is a great starting point. There's wonderful music you can listen to. There are performances that can be found. And um, her voice and to see what she does with the guitar is like really fresh and exciting. Um, And to think that she predates Richard, but she is also out there declaring herself. Um, And she had a fantastic um, a biography, you know, in one of her marriages, she got married in a huge stadium in front of her fans. Um, 
you know, she had a, a lady friend who was with her for many years in her life. Um, and she's one of those, those lives that were lived that were so rich and at the same time gave so much to this rock and roll genre that we deserve to know more about her. Yes. You mentioned, you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, Richard is a man of contradictions. Um, and one of the things that is presented in the film is his marriage um, and his relationships with, um, with some of the people that he had love affairs with who appear in your film. So can you talk about sort of how you handle that, which is, um, I think you handle it very well in the film. It's sort of um, a sensitive subject to bring someone and and to put them on camera and to ask them to tell you about their, you know, love history. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it was a joy to find Lee Angel. Um, I only had an address for her and I was in Los Angeles and I scribbled a little note and I stuck it under the door of the apartment I believe she lived in. And I went off to breakfast a little bit later, I got, I looked at my phone, it was blowing up and there was a message from that. It was Lee. And I called her and I said, Hey, you want to have breakfast with us? And I was with the other producers, Karen and Liz. And, and we, you know, I got her and we hung out for a bit. Um, and, you know, she met Richard when she was so young, mm-hmm. she, you know, considers herself the great love of his life. They were friends until the end. Um, and, um, you know, she became a burlesque performer and I just was like, wow, what a, what a rich lady and what a life lived. (laughs) Um, and then Ernestine, you know, when Richard left rock and roll and went to Oakwood to, to the Bible school, um, and then became a seventh day Adventist, it was in that world that he met. Ernestine, we had tried to find her during the make of the of the film, had no luck at all. And then we were literally finishing the film and she called and she said, I don't I don't need to be on camera. I don't want to be. But there are some things that were important to Richard that I want to share in the film. Mm. Um, And, you know, she was telling me that even though they were, you know, they had been divorced they still were friends they were friends until the end and you know I love that to the end he was friends with Sir Lady Java you know um, the wonderful LGBTQ activist and elder um so even though Richard um you know what was about like okay I'm leaving all the debauchery behind I'm leading this saintly life it never stopped him from loving a broad range of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we see that through, you know, Miss Ernestine, who's, you know, a a very devout religious person to uh, Lee Angel to, to Sir Lady Java. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to hear all these voices um, in the film certainly gives you a big, you know, a wider picture of what little Richard's life was. Um, And one, and also one of the most, um, just exuberant sort of entertaining parts of your film is the one where it tells the story of uh, the lyrics of Tutti Frutti and how they were changed and why they were changed. It's, of course, probably Little Richard's most famous song. 
very happy to find out that they were very queer and in your face, basically it said good uh, tutti frutti, good booty. So can you talk a little bit about how you brought this, this, this sequence together and made it so just entertaining to watch? Uh, I wanted that moment to be visceral. I felt that, you know, the tutti frutti origin story, um, you know, we should see a portion of it. And certainly there were no cameras at that time, but I was very lucky to engage a super talented um, musician, Corey Henry, to perform not only the original lyrics, Mm -hmm. um, which is talking about the booty, but also... (laughs) then return and um, to perform the the cleaned up lyrics that that Richard um, did with Dorothy Labostri. Um, you know, it's it, in a film like this is that you just don't want, I, I think I would have fallen flat if it was solely people telling you, like it were these lyrics and then it became the following, but you really get a sense of the, um, the, the daring and edge that Richard was introducing with that song and then mm-hmm. how he changed it. And then also the great musicality, you know, there's a reason we like the song and it's not just the lyrics. Yeah. It's, it's the music for sure. And that's really um, apparent in the film. Um, I think we only have a couple of minutes left. So my last question to you, I, I just want to know a little bit more about your process as a documentarian. Um, you've made this film about Little Richard. You made um, All In, The Fight of Democracy. You've ha- had the Apollo before that, which is an HBO documentary. So can you talk about how do you decide which stories to tell? Do the stories just find you or are you seeking a certain something um, in what you want to tell as a documentarian? Well, I think it's about honoring people, movements, the civil rights movement, the the struggle for voting rights, places, the Apollo Theater, people, Little Richard, whose contributions need to be valued, need to be, uh, we need to have a record of, of this history, this true history, and uh, for this true history to be an antidote to those people and forces who want to erase this history. Um, and that's what I is kind of the connective tissue between them all. They're they're different, but they, you know, are subjects that I care about deeply and have was excited to do tremendous uh research on, um, to pull together teams who were also excited about the um ability um with uh, uh, to use film as a forum, you know, mm-hmm. um, that can travel all over the world, that can travel hopefully to some classrooms and um, be a counterpoint to stories that are not being told. Yes. Um, Lisa, thank you so much for your time today. I wish you all the success with the film. Um, Thank you so much, Mertada. Always wonderful to be in conversation with you. Yes, I feel the same. Thank you so much.
Okay, well, first things first, how are you? How are you doing? I'm good. It's it's uh, always kind of a pinch me moment when I'm here. It doesn't set in until I get back home, Yeah. what just happened. It's kind of a, a whirlwind, and it's four days of people saying they love you. And when does that happen? Never. I know, right? It's like not even at home. No. Um, well, I'm curious about your involvement in the festival. Do you get uh, say in what they're programming or... Um, do you just kind of come in after all of that has been organized? Yeah, we have to wait until the programming has been set. We can make uh, suggestions, but the programming team are so good at what they do that we just wait until it's all done, and then we get to make our picks. And so it's always like we always want the same titles as each other, the five hosts, but we get to have our kind of first picks, and then the talent team, I don't know how they do it, but they manage to figure out how we can all do as many of our picks as possible right. while leaving room for other special guests. So you're not like drawing straws. No, you're not <laughs> you drawing straws. I mean, of course, Ben gets the the, the first pick because he's our senior host, but then the rest of us, we're like just duking it out, try and get what we want. Nice. Um, well, I just finished your latest book of Thank three books. You. Everyone go buy her books. <laughs> <laughs> but I had such an incredible time reading it because I truly felt like you were just actually saying my internal monologue and the way that I got into classic films and the way that I reacted to them. Yes. Um, like everything from uh, <laughs> like feeling safe with the men of classic films mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, whatever is going on in real life um, to, you know, connecting to certain women in classic films. And, you know, I'm curious how you know, your relationship with these figures has changed over time and how that kind of affects how you speak about classic films when you talk to people. Like, mm. it, do you see things differently now than you did back then? Mm -hmm. And does that change what, how you kind of talk about it when you're hosting? Yeah, I, I do find that. I think there are certain films that I loved as a child. I'll still love them now. They'll have that nostalgic feel, but I relate to different parts of the story. Mm -hmm. The Apartment is always a great example of that because that's one of my favorite films of all time. And it's a film that I can watch at various stages of my life and I'll find I'll relate to different people. So, you know, at one point in my life I related to the Jack Lemmon character who was very much a people pleaser and had to learn to say no and stand up for himself. And then other times I'm relating to Shirley MacLaine who falls for the bad guy instead of the nice guy that's right in front of her. So I love that about classic films, that they can change with you. You can grow. You can also watch films again and realize certain problematic messages you might have picked up when you were a kid, see them in a different light. I always try and think about that when I present the films on TCM. Is uh, It's always a balance of introducing the film to someone who's maybe never seen it before and how do you recontextualize the film for modern day audiences and also how do you speak to people that love this movie and this is their favorite film from childhood. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I love how you talk about presenting films in a really accessible way yeah. because I think TCM is trying to do that. I want to do that on my channel as well. You do that well. so well, by the Thank way. Thank you. <laughs> um, but I, I love that story when you were talking about when you started your film club Mm -hmm. As in high school, and you tried to show them Citizen Kane, <laughs> and you're like, okay, maybe teen girls aren't going to be into this. Yeah, but no. I'm also like, maybe they would be. Do you know what I mean? It's like if you could go back in time and sell Citizen Kane to them in a different way. Yes. 
how might you do that? How might I, you open them up to that? I think one of the things I think about, and I know you do this quite naturally yourself, is connecting it to modern day. So mm. something like Citizen Kane, you can talk about all of the films that have been influenced by this one film. And that's always fun when I show a film like His Girl Friday to one of my friends, and it almost feels like a parody of itself because it's been parodied so many times. True. And Citizen Kane, you can talk about the editing, the deep focus photography. I think that's the way I would approach it instead of just getting up in school assembly and like berating them for not seeing this <laughs> movie about a media magnate from like many years ago. Of course, teen girls are not going to be interested in that. So I always try and think of like, what's the way in? How can you speak to something that they love currently and connect it back because everything we see now can be traced back to movies from the past. Mm -hmm. And I was at the Meet TCM panel the other day and I forget who was talking about this, apologies, but <laughs> they were talking about meeting audiences where they're at, right? So like yeah. not a lot of younger people have cable packages where they can actually access TCM. So maybe the first place that they come into contact with directly TCM's accounts or even classic film in general might be on TikTok. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering just what you kind of think about that in general, but also like, are there strategies that you think are best for appealing to younger people and mm. kind of um, actually reaching out to them in different ways that aren't just like, this is a good movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think the, the social team who runs our TikTok does such a good job. Like mm -hmm. I'm not on TikTok too old but <laughs> but I I've seen the videos and and I love the way again it's like they relate to something that's happening today or you know a, a catchphrase or an aesthetic that is popular on TikTok and they relate it back to classic films and I think just packaging them in a different context is helpful because people will think okay cable number one number two old film, number three, black and white film, you know, sometimes foreign film. It, there's many leaps to make in order to, to actually watch the film and get them in the door. Once you get them in the door, I guarantee they'll love the film, but how mm. do you get them in? And it's having to exactly what you said, meet them where they're at. You know, what are people talking about today? What uh, are they excited about? Um, I love fashion for that reason because, and I know you do as well, because you can, you can directly see the influence. Even today, you look at who arrives at the Met Gala and you see them sometimes quite literally wearing a dress from old Hollywood, but a lot of times <laughs> wearing dresses that are reminiscent of old Hollywood and updated for modern times. Mm -hmm. And I love looking at that. And I know our friend Raisa Britannia does that so well that when she can see a modern day dress and say, look, this came from here. And I think that just sparks some interest in younger audiences mm -hmm. and makes them think, okay, maybe these movies aren't so inaccessible and out of touch. When you worked in more like mainstream, I guess, press outlets who were, you know, doing all of the interviews and all of those kinds of things, going to red carpets, did you find that there was an interest or even um, the impulse to involve people who are very knowledgeable about classic film or are they just kind of like, we're just <laughs> here I, to be here? Yeah, I used to get really frustrated because I kept being told like, you don't know anything about film because you haven't read comic books and, you know, Marvel comic books, are, comic movies and DC comic movies are really popular. And, and I love the fact that they get people into the theaters watching movies. And, um, but I thought that's so strange to think of it in that way because you can look at 
a, a movie like um, like uh, one of the Marvel movies I remember was related was inspired by Three Days of Condor. I mean, there's there's even classic movie influences on Marvel films, and so I thought, well, isn't it helpful to have someone? That knows about films pre, you know, the first Star Wars, and can relate to that because even George Lucas in making Star Wars was inspired, like Akira, by Akira Kurosawa, for example. So, I, I was always frustrated by that—that that there was a sense that uh, classic films were so far removed for what, from what was happening today. Mm-hmm. And I've always been of the mind of, no, it's all related and it's all fun, and we can talk about it all together because it's—I see it very in a, a linear way of uh, everything that's been influenced by what came before it. Mm-hmm. Well, that also ties into a lot of the work that TCM is doing, like bringing in these programmers who can talk about, yeah, my work is directly influenced by this, or this is what I was watching to yes. to actually um, formulate my ideas for this film, which is really cool. Yeah, and it's fun to see the kinds of TCM fans who are filmmakers mm-hmm. and actors. You know, you get like Paul Thomas Anderson saying, well, I keep TCM on 24-7 in my house. It's got sound down, but I keep it on. Martin Scorsese, you know, every hotel he stays at, he puts it on. Wes Anderson is a huge fan. Alexander Payne. I mean, there's so many filmmakers who are working today and actors working today. Ryan Reynolds is a huge TCM fan. Blake mm-hmm. Lively watches it too. So uh, I love seeing that when you get people in the industry who watch TCM for inspiration on their movies. So when you're watching films that come out today, are there moments where you're like, yeah, I can see what you did here. Yeah, I can see what you did there. I mean, <laughs> and the most like obvious example recently was Babylon, where you're like, okay, and before that, you know, with Damien Chazelle, La La Land, that yep. was fun to be like, I think, you know, back when I was doing YouTube videos, I was like, I can actually do an Easter eggs video for once and talk about like the classic film influences on La La Land. Yeah. And you see that with Babylon. And um, it's really fun to spot those moments. And that's why it's great to have someone like you who can speak to audiences on YouTube and, and talk about that and make especially what you do talking about women's stories and mm-hmm. updating them for modern times and showing how many women were trailblazers at a time when it was very hard to be one of the few women working in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of YouTube, um, I know you used to have a YouTube channel yes. and it's gone now, RIP. Gone, <laughs> not but, by me. But I, I related a lot to what you said about um, feeling like an introvert who kind of is forced to be in an extrovert's role. Like, this is very weird for me. I don't like to record myself. Yeah. Yeah, Like it's just, (laughs) I don't, I don't love um, like being on camera and all that stuff, but it's sort of like you have to train yourself to do it or not care. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was wondering if you could speak about that, especially like in the context of the TCM film festival, because Mm. this is a, like you are a big celebrity yeah, in this, this context. Yes, it's the only place in my life where people actually know what I do. And, yeah. you know, it's, like I said, lots of people saying they love you over and over, but it's mm-hmm. uh, very different from my usual life. And I am very much an introvert. I think a lot of movie lovers are. We love being in dark rooms, watching movies by mm-hmm. ourselves or with strangers. And to come out in front of it is strange. And I, I have to kind of forget that people are watching when I'm filming mm-hmm. in Atlanta, TCM. I just look down at the camera and I just just think about talking to the camera as if I would talk to a friend 
but not think about like, oh, Martin Scorsese might be watching this, Drew Barrymore might be watching this, you know, yeah. and all the other people that love TCM and it's so important to them. And it, that was really hard, of course, when I started TCM and I, I thought about Robert Osborne and what he meant to people and I was like, I can't live up to that, but maybe I can bring something of my own. And it's trying to find your own way through it, trying to find your voice. And uh, I mean, the idea of like fake it till you make it, I think can be dangerous because then you can try to become someone else. Mm. So it's always like, how do you, I'm always like, how do I present the real me that's interesting? Because the real yeah. me at home is not interesting, <laughs> um, but I don't want to be uh, this other version of me yeah. um, trying to be something else. So it's, it's hard, especially for women, because we get so many comments on how we look, how we sound, and it can really get in your head so I'd say also getting off social media was one of the best things for me personally and yeah. in being able to trust my own voice and not listen to all of the, the different opinions on it. Yeah, it's weird because I feel like it's one of those things where you know what works. Yeah. And it's like if you're capable of making yourself do that, yes. then you know you can be successful, but then it also feels so untrue to who you are. Yeah, you might lose yourself along yeah. the way and you lose who you are and you feel like you're performing. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, especially for women, I feel, feel like we are often just trying to be whatever people want us to be. Yeah. Like, what do you need from me? What do you want? I'm going to be that person. Mm -hmm. But, you, yeah, you can't lose yourself. And I think the most powerful thing when people are watching is when they can relate to the person that they see on camera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think a lot about who is watching me, but also who's watching TCM um, as like that is the pinnacle of classic film yeah. fandom, I guess. But uh, when I think a lot about like who the audience for TCM is, I feel like there is probably some sort of a divide there, right? Like mm -hmm. you have older audiences who maybe are more inclined one way politically mm -hmm. and younger audiences who are maybe inclined a different way. Exactly. Um, and I'm curious about how um, TCM tries to balance that and mm -hmm. maybe some of the challenges that come with that balancing act. Yeah, well, we, we never want to alienate anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, or force our views on anyone, but TCM does give us complete leeway to do whatever we want, say whatever we want about a film. I mean, I write my own scripts and they go through checks with fact checkers, of course, to make sure all my facts are correct and then through the producers and make sure it's the right tone for TCM. But we can really say what we want to say and so there's great freedom in that. And I always just think like, I mean, I remember the first time, I think I spoke about this in my book, but the first time I was called an SJW, a social justice warrior, and I thought that was a good thing. I was like, that's a good thing. I'm a social justice warrior. Didn't realize it was supposed to be, you know, not, not nice. It's supposed to be an <laughs> offensive remark, but I thought that's great. And I still think sometimes when people say you're too politically correct, it's like, well, isn't that a good thing to try to think about other people and try to empathize with people and know that maybe other people have different experiences to me, whatever way that is, and um, be mindful of that. I, we always want to call out things like blackface, yellowface, you know, discrimination in films. And it doesn't mean we don't show the film in its entirety and we're not going to cancel anyone. We're not going to delete any films from the film canon, but we just want to have a conversation about them. And uh, whether that conversation is, you know, you, sh you shouldn't tell us about this, so we know about this, and we d you know it's a different time, or like I didn't realize that, and isn't that interesting? 
either way, it's it's great. Just debate is good as well. I think yeah. we um, need to listen to all sides and yeah. have a good conversation. Do you feel like a class watching classic film has kind of made you more adept at like nuance? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how to put this exactly, but it's sort of like when you, know you can you look mean. at something and take the good and the bad yes. and kind of hold them together. Yeah, I think it really has because you watch a film that you love and you think, okay, well, that woman's really independent and strong. And I know Janine Basinger talks about this in her book, A Woman's View, that you can have a film where a woman is really independent as a character and then gives up everything to get married at the end. Uh, but the ending doesn't negate the power of the film that came before it. So I think that has trained my brain to be like, okay, two opposite things can be true at once. You can love a film and not be able to defend parts of it. You can hate a film and enjoy the art of it. You know, I think it's it's really helpful in that way to be able to say things aren't all black and white, even if it's a black and white movie, things aren't all good or bad. There's so many different layers going on in a film. And um, that's what I love, having that conversation where you don't have the answer. You're like, I don't know the answer. I don't know what the right thing to say here, here is. I don't, can't tell you what to think, uh, but let's chat about it. What do you think? What do you think? Mm -hmm. I find that fascinating. Yeah, totally. Uh, so I guess going back to that conversation about like drawing in new people and all of that, I'm wondering, like, obviously the first step is, let's say, meeting them on TikTok mm -hmm. where they are and then hopefully getting enough interest to where they make the leap to the channel. Mm -hmm. um, what steps are is TCM taking to sort of make the channel itself actually more welcoming? Yeah, we're trying to, you know, with the rebrand we did recently, updating the graphics, updating the music, and then just incorporating our tagline where then meets now, I think is really sums up what we're doing, which is trying to connect again modern day to the past. Also just the way in which we think about classic films is changing because I know sometimes people say, I can't believe you're playing a film from 1993 on the channel. And you're like, well, it was 30 years ago now, you know, from 1980s, 40 years ago now. So even movies that people don't think of as being old, they are classic films now. So I think just broadening that definition and continuing to, and we will, and soon it'll be the 2000 films, uh, you know, classic films. I don't think there's a hard and fast rule about what is classic. Mm -hmm. And just uh, trying to think of different ways to program them. We're always trying to think of ways to contextualize them. We'll always play films from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, that's our bread and butter, but trying to put in some modern uh, films there as well, and also different programmers who can come on and give different perspectives about a film. Yeah, I was um, laughing at the most recent American Girl doll release. Which, <laughs> what was that? Because <laughs> like, it's a it's a line of dolls that are about like different historical eras, and the most recent one was the '90s. And I was yeah. like, cool. I know when you cool. see people wearing like outfits I used to wear to high school. Yeah, and they're like oh, it's vintage '90s. Like, well, I'm old, <laughs> yeah, but exactly. it's true. Vintage. It's the '90s, you know, for kids today. Uh, like the 60s were in the 90s. Oh, so literally, yeah. It is classic. It is vintage. Um, well, are there films that you that have come out in the last 10 to 15 years that you're like, that's going to be on TCM one day? I'm excited yeah. to introduce that. I think so many, um, especially by, like we had last night at the opening night, we had Steven Spielberg and Paul Thomas Anderson, and they've already directed films that are classics, but they continue to. I mean, even just the trailer for the new Wes Anderson film, 
um, Asteroid City. I thought that looks like it's, because again, it speaks so much to the past. It's set in the 50s, but through Wes Anderson's quirky, symmetrical lens, you know, it brings a different take to it. So films like that, uh, La La Land, I can definitely see happening on TCM, Moonlight. I mean, so many films in the last couple of years will go on to be classics. And probably before we know it, we'll be introducing them on TCM. So exciting. So exciting. Lots of female filmmakers, of course, you know, that's my jam. And (laughs) there's been much more of a a rise in a conversation about the importance of female filmmakers and filmmakers like Joanna Hogg. I mean, I saw The Eternal Daughter recently, and it's such a simple film, but so well-directed, well-crafted, well-acted in two roles by Tilda Swinton. Films like that, I'm like, this is going to be a classic. This is going to be a film that we study in years to come and and watch just how, you know, Souvenir as well, like watch just how she directed that. Yeah, I was going to say Souvenir. Their collaborations are just incredible. Yeah. So I guess to start wrapping things up, because I know you're very busy, um, what are you looking forward to in the future from TCM? I'm just so excited about to see where it can go. I mean, we have our cable channel. We hope that cable will continue to be around. But now that we are part of the Discovery family Mm -hmm. and Max is coming, we want to see how that will translate with TCM. You know, Mm -hmm. what will happen in the future, we don't know with... Uh, the streaming services, but I think there's such an opportunity there for a curation by TCM to be on a platform like Max with hosted introductions, Mm -hmm. because that's something that doesn't happen in other streaming services. And I think the more streaming services we get, the more curation is going to be important. And something that's so great about TCM is that it's handpicked by people who love film. Mm -hmm. So if we can translate that experience to streaming service and and introduce the concept of TCM outside of the cable channel to younger audiences, I think that could be really exciting. Mm-hmm. So are you going to get your own show? That's I mean, I would love you that. you got to have your own Max show. Yeah, I would love that. I mean, I <laughs> so many ideas that I could do. I mean, I've always, you know, loved the idea of having an old movie theater, and I thought that would be a fun, like, sort of part renovation Part reality oh, like a show. whole reality show. And then I could go around America, like, redoing old theatres and giving them back to communities. I mean, that would be a dream. Oh, my God. So that now we're incredible. part of Discovery. I mean, come on. Hello, itself. let's go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny because my last question to you was going to be, can I work at your theatre when yes, it opens? you can. <laughs> Absolutely. You've got to come and introduce a film. Yeah. Oh, my, my gosh. Yeah. So there's a theatre that I've had my eye on that's for sale and, um, I mean, it's a, it's a big task to try and figure out how to raise money for it, buy it, renovate it, start a nonprofit. But, um, you know, I'm nothing if not determined. Yeah. So, well, that's my goal thing. Is. I know, and not to like gush too much about your books and everything, but I like one of the things I really admire about you is like, that you truly just make a list and you're like, I'm going to do these things. Yeah. And then you do those things. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like that is such a singular skill set to just actually achieve what you set out to achieve. It really helps just for me to have something written on paper, yeah. something concrete that I can see and be like, these are my goals and I can keep referring back to because I know uh, some goals that I wrote down, I was like, this will take me 10 years mm-hmm. and I got to like keep the faith that this yeah. will happen and not get swayed by something that's quicker, but maybe it'll take me off course. Mm-hmm. So I just keep coming back to it. I break it down into smaller steps and it just makes me feel like I'm doing something yeah. to work towards it. And then I look back, 
in years to come. And I'm like, oh, I did all the things. Yeah. Crazy. Oh, that's so wild. And <laughs> like truly getting through one of the most annoyingly misogynistic <laughs> industries, especially in the like the 2010s. Oh Just my what gosh. an awful era. I know. I remember, you know, doing a show where it was three girls talking about movies and the comments were like, that's a funny looking kitchen. I mean, it was not that oh long ago God. and it was just, uh, it really shocked me at the time. And I think it's starting to get better. And luckily we have many more women out there doing this, but even in talking about classic films, I'll get like, but do you really watch the films? Do you really know about the films? And that's not a question that gets asked of my male colleagues. So, but it's getting better. Yeah, definitely the 2010s were rough. Yeah. Do you also get that because you're young? Yeah, yeah. I get that because I'm young and a woman, I think. But yeah, people are very confused about like how I started watching classic films. I'm like, yeah, I know I was a weird kid <laughs> watching these films as right. a child, but it's so many other people's stories. And that's right. why... When I wrote my latest book, I thought, you know, I, I didn't want to make a memoir because it's like I don't want it to be all about me. But I knew that just the story of loving classic film would be so relatable to many people mm -hmm. like yourself who have loved classic films from a very young age. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa and Alicia, for those wonderful interviews. If you're listening to this, don't forget to go rate and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. That helps us um, with the algorithms and so people can find us. Yes, please do that. And until next time, you can find me on Twitter at M-E underscore says or on Instagram at Mortada underscore E. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at I am Picture Show. And you can find me at BK Rewind on Twitter, BK underscore Rewind on Instagram, and Be, uh, Be Kind Rewind on YouTube. <laughs>